Pico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. In today's feature report, we usually present excerpts from IER podcast, but we thought Enrique Sands' report on climate change is so informative and timely that we decided to replay the entire recording. But first, today's environmental stories. The Energy News Network reports Indiana solar installers knew their customers would be worse off when new reduced rates for surplus solar generation took effect on July 1st. But changes being ushered in by utilities go far beyond what the industry had been bracing for, say solar and consumer advocates, who are now challenging regulators' interpretation of a 2017 law that gutted net metering. All five of Indiana's investor-owned utilities have won approval to not only slash the rate paid for customers' surplus solar power, but also change how solar output is calculated in a way that drastically reduces the payments. Utilities say they are protecting other customers from subsidizing those with solar panels, but advocates say the outcome threatens to put rooftop solar out of reach for all but the wealthiest customers. Quote, unfortunately, utilities used the opportunity to completely change the policy, and state regulators went along with what utilities wanted, end quote, said Ben Inskeep, program director at Citizen Action Coalition, a consumer and environmental advocacy group based in Indianapolis. The bill, SA309, put the state on a path to phasing out net metering by 2047, Meanwhile, it let utilities begin paying solar customers a lower rate when solar penetration reached 1.5% of their summer peak load, or by July 2022. CenterPoint, previously known as Vectron, was the first utility to reach that benchmark, and early last year filed a request to institute the new lower rate known as the excess distribution generation. CenterPoint also proposed switching from monthly net metering to a new model known as instantaneous netting, in which customers pay the full retail rate for all power used from the grid, and all solar power sent back to the grid is paid at the much lower rate. The arrangement turns out so badly for customers that advocates like Inskeep refer to it as no netting. The Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission approved CenterPoint's full request in April 2021, despite arguments from consumer and solar advocates that the plan oversteps what's called for in the 2017 law. Brad Morton, founder and CEO of Morton Solar, told the commission that the switch to instantaneous netting grossly lengthens the customer investment payback period, 
with instantaneous netting at the 3.1 cents per kilowatt hour originally proposed by CenterPoint, changing the typical residential solar payback period from the current 7 to 10 years to 21 years. The black residents of the Grays Ferry section of Philadelphia are grappling with the aftermath of the shutdown of the 150-year-old Philadelphia Energy Solutions refinery, which once was the East Coast's largest, covering 1,300 acres. An explosion in June of 2019 destroyed the refinery, which shortly closed afterward. Although the refinery has been partially dismantled, its environmental and health effects live on. The site is emitting harmful chemicals, one of which is benzene, linked to cancer and other illnesses. The benzene lingering at the site, according to an analysis just released, is twice the federal threshold and at the second highest level in the nation. Over the years, the refinery has undergone changes in ownership, but decades of unchecked fossil fuel processing has meant nonstop pollution. Now, Hillco Redevelopment Partners wants to turn the refinery site into a new commercial and residential complex they are planning on calling the Bellwether District. However, many neighbors say Redevelopment Partners has excluded them from the planning process to help determine the future of the site. Meanwhile, the Grays Ferry residents are getting sick and dying. They suffer from asthma, cancer, diabetes, and lung and heart disease, among other ailments. In 2019, the American Lung Association issued a warning for Philadelphia, which is 40% black, that the air was probably hazardous to residents' health. Environmental officials have stated that the soil and groundwater at the refinery site are polluted, primarily with lead and hydrocarbons like benzene. Experts expect the cleanup of the site to take at least a decade and cost more than a billion dollars. The New York Times reports that North America's monarch butterfly has been classified as endangered by the International Union for Conservation of Nature, the world's most comprehensive scientific authority on the status of species. The decision comes after decades of falling populations driven by losses in the plants they need as caterpillars and in the forests where adults spend the winter, combined with climate change, the assessment found. The authors reviewed about 100 studies, interviewed experts, and applied criteria from the group's red list of threatened species to come up with their decision. The numbers of western monarchs, which live west of the Rocky Mountains, plummeted by an estimated 99.9% between the 1980s and 2021. While they rebounded somewhat this year, they remain in great peril. Eastern monarchs, which make up most of the population in North America, dropped by 84% from 1996 to 2014. The new designation of endangered covers both populations. In 2020, U.S. wildlife officials found that monarchs were threatened with extinction but declined to add them to the endangered species list because they said conservation of other species took priority. Continuing with information about the monarch butterfly, habitat destruction in Mexican forests was an early threat, said Anna Walker, an entomologist with the New Mexico Biopark Society who led the assessment. The Mexican government stepped in, creating a reserve in 1986 and expanding it in 2000. While concerns remain over illegal logging and disease, that conservation work has helped, she said, stemming the loss of overwintering habitat quite effectively. 
But a new problem has come along. The assessment noted, American farmers turned to crops that were genetically modified to withstand glyphosate, a herbicide that is used in the weed killer. That took out a lot of the milkweed plants that the monarch caterpillars rely on. Then there's climate change, which worsens storms, droughts, and other such events that can be catastrophic for the already vulnerable populations. Hot, dry spring seasons in the South are of special concern to monarch experts. Add to that broader questions about the climate change disrupting ancient cycles, such as when plants sprout. We're starting to see this kind of mismatch between when insects are ready to start the spring and when plants are ready. Monarch experts are eager to enlist the public's help in saving the species. Their message, plant milkweed that's native to your region, which probably means avoiding tropical milkweed. Swamp milkweed is an attractive, easy to grow variety native to all but the most Western areas of the continuous United States. That's for the egg laying and caterpillars. The butterflies need nectar, so plant native flowers that bloom when monarchs are in your area. Dr. Karen Oberhauser, a conservation biologist at the University of Wisconsin said, quote, we're holding our own at a number that's not quite sustainable. If we didn't have all these efforts on the part of a lot of different organizations and individuals, I think the numbers would be even lower, end quote. In today's feature, Indiana environmental reporter Enrique Sainz will be talking about climate change. Usually we present excerpts from IER podcast, but we thought this report is so informative and timely that we decided to replay the entire recording. On this episode of Honor with IER, President Biden is taking some executive action on climate change, but will it be enough to bring us back from the brink? Brink. This is On Air with IER. Nothing gives me more hope for the future than seeing my five grandchildren challenge expectations. They see breakthroughs in technology we can't even yet imagine, but the only way they're going to get a chance to fill all that potential is if we take drastic action right now to address the climate disaster facing the nation and our world. More severe storms and droughts, rising sea levels, warming temperatures, shrinking snow cover and ice sheets. It's already happening. And science tells us that how we act or fail to act in the next 12 years will determine the very livability of our planet. In the run-up to the 2020 election, Joe Biden decided to make fighting the climate crisis one of his main campaign promises. It's easy to see why. It's a real threat to how we live, work, and play. Scientists have observed a global warming trend since the middle of the 20th century that has been driven by human activity. The burning of fossil fuels like coal and oil and to a lesser extent, carbon-intensive agricultural practices and industry have released greenhouse gases that trap heat in the atmosphere and warm the earth. That heat has caused dangerous and expensive to mitigate changes in the earth's climate like droughts, wildfires, and extreme rainfall. Here in Indiana, climate change has caused the average annual temperature to increase by 1.2 degrees Fahrenheit since 1895. The average annual precipitation has increased by 5.6 inches since 1895, with much of it falling in shorter but heavier rain events that increase the risk of flooding. 
Hoosier communities have invested millions of dollars just to keep up with the changes that are already happening, and might have to invest millions more if fossil fuel use continues at its current rate. Some projections have the average annual temperature rising between 5 and 6 degrees by mid-century and up to 10 degrees by 2100, a possibility that could prove fatal for some Hoosiers. By mid-century, average annual precipitation could also increase between 6 and 8 percent, creative massive changes in the way Hoosiers live, work, and play. After Biden won the presidency with the largest popular vote total in history, the new administration began trying to fulfill its promises. Today, I'm Pleased to announce a team that will lead my administration's ambitious plan to address the existential threat of our time, climate change. Then President-elect Biden began nominating the people who could carry out his climate goals. Former Secretary of State John Kerry would serve as Special Presidential Envoy for Climate. The Secretary of North Carolina's Department of Environmental Quality would serve as the next EPA Administrator. Indiana University Professor of Practice Janet McCabe would be nominated for Deputy Administrator and many more positions with important climate ramifications in the executive branch would also be filled. The stage was set to begin fighting the climate crisis and on the first day, President Biden came out swinging. I thought with the state of the nation today, it's no time to waste, get to work immediately. As we've indicated earlier, we're gonna be signing a number of ex executive orders over the next uh, several days of the week. And I'm going to start today on the compounding crisis of COVID, COVID-19, along with the economic crisis following that, and climate crisis, racial equity issues. I think some of the things we're going to be doing are going to be are bold and vital, and uh, there's no time to start like today. The executive actions set up the White House Office of Domestic Climate Policy and appointed former EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy as his national climate advisor. The order set up a 21-agency National Climate Task Force to help make climate decisions throughout the government, ordered federal agencies to, over time, use carbon-free electricity and zero-emission vehicles, and ordered that federal money used for infrastructure must reduce climate pollution. The orders also revoked the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline, a pipeline that would have exported millions of barrels of tar sand oil internationally. At the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference, Biden announced a goal to reduce U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by 50 to 52 percent by the year 2030. Individual departments and agencies like the Departments of Defense and Bureau of Land Management carried out their own policies to reduce climate change impact. But executive actions can be rolled back by other presidents, so Biden placed his hopes on more permanent climate action through the passage of legislation. Democrats had the House, but the Senate was a 50-50 tie, with Democrats being the majority only due to the vice president's tie-breaking vote. Every vote in Congress counted. Biden backed a $2 trillion infrastructure bill that would focus on physical infrastructure improvements like building and improving roads, bridges and water systems, retrofit homes and buildings, modernize schools, boost manufacturing, and research and development and increasing corporate taxes. The plan was opposed by Republicans and by some members of the president's own party as being too expensive. The plan was split into two separate packages. One would solely have the infrastructure improvements and another would focus on what was called human infrastructure, including improving social programs and other improvements. Progressives in the Democratic Party warned that splitting the two packages would doom the non-tangible infrastructure package. 
The first package, which became the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, aka the Bipartisan Infrastructure Deal, was passed by the Senate only after it was whittled down due to demands by conservative Democrats. Coal broker and U.S. Senator from West Virginia Joe Manchin and Senator Kristen Sinema of Arizona. The second package was also whittled down in hopes that the bill was pared down enough to get enough votes to pass. Progressives in the House of Representatives blocked several attempts to vote on the first package in an attempt to apply pressure to get both packages passed. Manchin did not approve. There are some House Democrats who say they can't support this infrastructure package until they get my commitment on the reconciliation legislation. I've worked in good faith for three months, for the past three months, with President Biden, Leader Schumer, Speaker Pelosi, and my colleagues on the reconciliation bill, and I will continue to do so. Holding this bill hostage is not going to work in getting my support for reconciliation bill. Throughout the last three months, I've been straightforward about my concerns that I will not support a reconciliation package that expands social programs and irresponsibly adds to our $29 trillion in national debt that no one seems to really care about or even talk about. Nor will I support a package that risks hurting American families suffering from historic inflation. Simply put, I will not support a bill that is this consequential without thoroughly understanding the impact that it'll have on our national debt, our economy, and most importantly, all of our American people. The infrastructure bill became law in November. Now, eight months later, progressives seem to have been proven right. Manchin announced July 14th that he would not support a budget package that includes climate or tax provisions, essentially wasting months of valuable time to address the climate crisis. His explanation? Inflation. Manchin said he would support only action on the drug pricing portion of the plan, but would not support climate provisions until he had a better understanding of the inflation figures for July. In a statement, President Biden said he would take strong executive action to tackle the climate crisis if the Senate would not move to do so. Environmental and health advocacy groups urged Biden to use the full power of the presidency to take on climate change. Hopes were high when the administration said Biden would announce new executive actions at a former coal-fired power plant in Massachusetts that shifted to offshore wind power system manufacturing. But the big question was, would Biden declare a climate national emergency? Doing so would unlock emergency executive powers, allowing President Biden to more directly address the climate crisis, like restricting fossil fuel exports, growing domestic clean energy manufacturing, directing FEMA to build renewable energy systems, and many other actions. But the move could alienate Manchin and prevent Congress from passing durable climate legislation that could survive future administrations, as executive actions can be reversed by new presidents. Earlier in the week, Manchin kept dangling hope that a deal could be reached after previously saying no, telling a West Virginia radio station a deal could be reached in the future as long as fossil fuels are still in play. I want climate. I want an energy policy. Here's the problem they have. I want an energy policy, basically, and the only way I understand if you're going to get the price of gasoline down and the world is demanding more fossil everywhere in the world, is that we need to produce more. They might have, a, 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 some people have, an, a, 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 an outlook that the only way you're going to do this is by eliminating, stop producing fossil, no more oil, no more coal, no more gas. That's crazy. The whole world's in flux right now. So the only thing the United States can do is if we want to decarbonize, then we want to produce more fossil 
cleaner than anyone in the world and replace the dirty fossil that's going into the atmosphere now. Manchin, the chair of the Senate Energy Committee, has made millions of dollars from a private coal brokerage firm he founded three decades ago and has accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars in campaign contributions from the fossil fuel industry. As governor of West Virginia, he signed a renewable energy law that classified waste coal as an alternative energy, allowing power plants to purchase the coal and have it counts towards their renewable electricity goals. Manchin's family business, Enter Systems Inc., has apparently made millions of dollars selling waste coal to a single power plant in West Virginia named the Grant Town Power Plant. The 74-year-old Manchin has a vested interest in keeping fossil fuels in play. But despite the conflict of interest, Manchin's vote is crucial to the Biden administration. The 50-50 Senate makeup means the Democrats and their independent allies in the Senate must vote in unison to get anything passed, as almost any climate legislation is almost assured of vigorous opposition from Republicans. Not only must Democrats agree on legislation, they must also agree on special Senate rules like agreeing on reconciliation, a procedure which would override filibuster rules in the Senate. That would change rules so that bills can pass with a majority of 51 votes instead of the 60 usually needed to overcome a filibuster, an action that prevents a vote on a bill. With all that in mind, taking on fossil fuels on his own could turn Biden's reluctant colleague into an enemy. Last week, Biden announced new executive actions, $2.3 billion in new resilience funding, $385 million for communities suffering from extreme heat, and a 700,000-acre expansion of federal areas open for offshore wind power development. But the president did not issue a climate emergency declaration, despite again acknowledging an urgent need to address the climate crisis. We see it here in America, in red states and blue states, extreme weather events costing $145 billion, $145 billion in damages just last year. More powerful and destructive hurricanes and tornadoes. Our national security is at stake as well. Extreme weather is already damaging our military installations here in the States, and our economy is at risk. So we have to act. Extreme weather disrupts supply chains, causes delays and shortages for consumers and businesses. Climate change is literally an existential threat to our nation and to the world. Besides cutting off the chance of a deal Manchin and other corporate Democrats can approve of, a climate emergency declaration and other executive action could become mired in lawsuits from affected industries, much like the Trump administration faced when it declared a national emergency at the southern border to get a border wall built after Congress rejected a plan to do so. Future administrations could also revoke executive actions. The fossil fuel industry and its supporters are likely to sue to stop the implementation of any new actions limiting the use of fossil fuels or imposing profit-reducing emissions limits. The industry has defeated previous attempts to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, like the Obama-era Clean Power Plan, and has successfully sued the US EPA in support of a plan that would have essentially allowed more easily influenced states to set their own greenhouse gas emission standards, the Trump Affordable Clean Energy Rule. The ACE rule lawsuit supported by the Republican Attorneys General of Indiana and 18 other coal-dependent states resulted in the U.S. Supreme Court's limiting the EPA's power to enact industry-wide greenhouse gas regulations. Biden has recently wielded executive power on climate change lightly, potentially to keep open the possibility of reaching a deal with Manchin. But how much longer the administration and the world can wait is unclear.
That's all for this edition of On Air with IER. Check out our website, indianaenvironmentalreporter.org, for environmental stories and more. On Air with IER is produced by independent journalists and producers based at the Media School at Indiana University, as well as by student interns. Producers are employees of the Media School. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHP also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Learn about Mammals of the Sky at Spring Mill State Park on Friday, July 29th from 1 to 1.30 p.m. Meet naturalist Emily at the Lakeview Activity Center to learn about our insect-devouring flying mammals in Indiana and help debunk some myths about our bat friends. Join our DNR forester, Travis Dunn, for a trip through the woods at Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area on Saturday, July 30th from 10 a.m. to noon. Learn about Indiana forest and how they are managed for wildlife. Meet at the Thousand Islands North parking lot. Bring bug spray and water. Go to the DNR website for information on how to register. The much-loved Flora Field Day is coming up on Tuesday, August 2nd from 9.30 to 11.30 at the Moores Creek State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake. You will practice with a naturalist on your flora identification skills using Newcomb's Wildflower Guide. Copies will be available. You will learn proper use and application of an ID key, which opens the door to identifying thousands of species. Bring bug spray and water. Register at bit.ly slash florafield, that's all one word, hyphen AUG2022. Drop by and listen to Owl Songs at the Paintown State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Friday, August 5th from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Meet at the campground playground to listen to the calls of Indiana's owls, then see if you can match the call to the correct owl. Learn about owl habitats and much more. A natural rope and plant cordage program is scheduled for Saturday, August 6th from 12.30 to 2.30 p.m. at the Wapahani Mountain Bike Park. This hands-on workshop will help you identify, find, and process plants into cordage. Register at bloomington.in.gov slash parks. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Enrique Sainz gave us the Indiana Environmental Report. Juliana Daly assembled the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it.
Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Patrick Callanan produced and auto-edited today's show. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.